Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this interview, we'll discuss hospital market consolidation and what potential impact the Affordable Care Act will have in accelerating hospital consolidation. With me to discuss the topic is Dr. Paul Ginsberg. Welcome, Dr. Ginsberg. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Thank you. As always, let me begin with some background, and in providing background comments, uh, I'll just make three points. The first is, as I noted in the podcast introduction, the hospital market is already substantially uh, concentrated. Secondly, studies at least suggest uh, that hospitals and physician group medical practices in concentrated markets do charge payers and patients higher prices. Thirdly, the Affordable Care Act encourages greater clinical integration and efficiency, I'd say appropriately so, via via ACOs, um, bundled payments, and other mechanisms. Of course, Dr. Ginsburg's bio is posted on the website. So with that, uh, let's begin. Uh, Dr. Ginsburg, Paul, what's your sense or your assessment of uh, current state of hospital market consolidation And I'll just add, um, what's your understanding then of the evidence for uh, hospitals uh, charging prices, higher prices, uh, um, in concentrated markets? Sure. Well, the hospital industry now is, you know, pretty heavily uh, consolidated. And there definitely has been a recent trend, say in the last uh, four or five years, of really accelerating uh, consolidation. Uh, there are a lot of factors behind that which we can go into if, if you'd like. And the, uh, and the research, uh, the quantitative research on that, you know, comes to some pretty clear conclusions that, uh, you know, greater concentration does lead to higher prices. I think the research is very mixed or uncertain about whether there's a uh, effect on quality. Okay, and, and speaking of, there is a piece in today's New York Times uh, in the business section titled uh, Healthcare's Overlooked Cost Factor, uh, where they do discuss the consequence of the merger between Northwestern and Highland Park, that resulting in higher uh, prices charged to certain HMOs and PPOs. Let me ask you, though, before I move on, what, what are those factors that explain uh, the consolidation of the market? Oh, you know, I think they're very broad. You know, I think the way medical care is changing with the, uh, you know, both, uh, you know, I would say a real consensus in both the provider leadership and the health plan leadership to move away from fee-for-service payments and to address the fragmentation, lack of coordination of care, moving towards different ways of paying for care, such as through accountable care organizations, bundled payment medical homes. I think that is a key factor in driving consolidation because it's really a world that a small physician practice or a small independent hospital doesn't fit very well. There are some other factors, the uh, requirements to report on quality, um, requirements, I mean they're really incentives at this point, but they're taken as requirements uh, to have information technology, to do electronic prescribing uh, for drugs. Uh, These trends are all making it more difficult for small independent providers to uh, uh, to be viable. Okay, there. Um, let's just throw this in as well. 
So since I mentioned the intro, beyond the hospitals consolidating, we have uh, physician group practices um, um, growing larger. Uh, the business is becoming less of a, as you suggested, a siloed business. And also, too, we have the hospital, the rather the payer or the insurance market consolidation factor as well occurring. Let me ask you, um, to factor in uh, concentration of the payer market, uh, do concentrated health insurance markets, um, are they counteracted um, by concentrations in the payer market? Uh, yes. Um, I don't know how solid the evidence is, but, uh, but my sense from the various site visit or qualitative research I've done is that when there is a very dominant payer in a market, that, that does tend to constrain provider prices. So when the American Medical Association complains vigorously about uh, uh, health plan consolidation being a problem, it knows what it's talking about. Now, it's a problem for physicians. It's a problem for hospitals. It may not be a problem for purchasers or consumers because, uh, you know, there's the potential for some of that uh, price constraint to be passed on to them. It all depends on how competitive the insurance markets are. But I think the, you know, these examples of very dominant providers are situations that have not come about through mergers. Uh, they've often been long-standing, you know, a, a plan like Blue Cross Blue Shield of Alabama, which I think is the most dominant Blue Cross Blue Shield plan in the country, has just been that way for forever, and it probably did not happen as a result of the mergers. And to the degree that health plan markets are becoming more consolidated now, it's not happening so much through merger activity but just through uh, being large is becoming increasingly valuable in the health plan world. So the local or regional health plans, other than Blue Cross Blue Shield, have been diminishing in their market share. Okay, so we talked about the consolidation in these three uh, interrelated or separate areas. Um, let me just go back to the quality point. What's your understanding about we? There is a general understanding that it drives prices. My understanding is the evidence is fairly mixed on quality. What's your understanding? The evidence about insurer consolidation. The evidence about what effect consolidation has on quality. Consolidation of insurance? Yes. I I wouldn't expect to have it to have much of an effect, Mm -hmm. Uh, but but like you, I'm not aware of any research that's clear cut on that. Okay. You did suggest it, but let's revisit this, or if you could say further on, there are efficiencies in market consolidation, um, least of which, of course, in some markets there's been overcapacity. So what's the upside to all this? And we'll get to the ACA, but just from a business perspective, the upside. Well, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there have been many instances where, you know, consolidation has actually been a mechanism to take some excess capacity out of the market. And, you know, the, in healthcare, you know, excess capacity is not a problem generally outside of healthcare. If it exists, uh, it gets taken out of the market almost automatically because people lose money from having excess capacity. That's not always the case in healthcare. But, you know, certainly 
uh, you know, historically, consolidation has taken some uh, uh, capacity out of the market. Uh, it has increased, to some extent, purchasing power uh, by hospitals for the things they buy, like uh, medical devices or supplies. Um, it has, uh, you know, sometimes been able to spread better management. Uh, and actually, in fact, the almost the entire business model of the for-profit hospital uh, chains is to identify a poorly performing nonprofit hospital uh, that is poorly performing because it's not being managed well, acquire it, manage it better, and then sell it, perhaps even returning it to not-for-profit uh, status. So, uh, so I think those are some of the upsides of consolidation. Historically, now going forward, there is a potential that consolidation can be helpful as far as the more integrated delivery system that's being envisioned and uh, an effective way of uh, dealing very constructively with the incentives of uh, provider payment reform. And of course we have a new type of consolidation that I don't want to forget, which is what economists might call vertical integration or consolidation, and I think specifically of um, hospitals acquiring physician practices. There's actually some activity of insurers acquiring physician practices, and these types of consolidations have implications as well, for good or for not good. So exactly, so the horizontal is hospitals acquiring other hospitals, the vertical is hospitals acquiring, as you suggested, physician group practices. That's right. And also one of the things I want to mention is that a lot of the horizontal consolidation in the physician world has been focused on single specialty practices. So there's been a real growth of cardiology, urology, uh, ophthalmology practices, um, not much less in primary care. And I think the crossroads we're at now for primary care physicians is whether their future is through physician organizations, either you know, a larger multi-specialty group or a primary care group, or working with more virtual organizations like an independent practice association, or whether most of them become employed by hospitals. And I think that's going to have very important implications for how competitive the hospital market is. Now, basically, if you have an ACO led by a physician organization, that's likely to make the hospital market more competitive, particularly compared to the option of uh, physicians being hospital employees, because these physician organizations will have very strong incentives to uh, admit to those hospitals that appear to be the higher value hospitals. Okay, so let's let's cover uh, a bit more uh, comprehensively the, the Affordable Care Act. So it's now in its third year. We did mention the one provision, uh, which is the affordable uh, the um, accountable care organizations. There are other provisions. So what's your assessment um, relative to the interaction between? those provisions in the ACA and in the marketplace? Yes, well, you know, when a lot of people raise this question about the role of the Affordable Care Act, and I have to point out the, the Affordable Care Act is like a conglomerate. It has a lot of different provisions in different areas. You know, to me, the core of the Affordable Care Act is the, uh, you know, the tax credits for 
people to buy insurance on the exchange and the expansions of Medicaid in those states that are doing it. That's the core. You know, that uh, is going to start next year. Um, and the, uh, the fairly vigorous push in, in the direction of piloting uh, various provider payment reform approaches like ACOs and bundled payments, uh, you know, that, that is an important part of the ACO. But I would characterize that as a type a legislative direction that likely was going to happen regardless of the Affordable Care Act. You know, if you look at the private sector, if you look at some of the examples of uh, uh, commercial insurers contracting with providers uh, with models like accountable care organizations, they actually began a couple of years before the Affordable Care Act passed. They were some of the inspiration for it. And in fact, because they predated the Affordable Care Act, in many cases they're not called accountable care organizations. They're called the Alternative Quality Contract in Massachusetts. In Minnesota, they're called Total Care Contracts. So, you know, to me, uh, this part of the Affordable Care Act, which is very important, is not so much, you know, the Affordable Care Act, but really um, a direction that's might very well have been acted, even on a bipartisan basis, if there had not been an Affordable Care Act. Okay, very excellent, very good point. Let's go to uh, the federal government's uh, response to this, um, and that would be cases that the Federal Trade Commission has attempted. What's your understanding of the work that they've been doing to try to address this? Address? Uh, in- Hospital mergers. Well, you know, the, uh, the Federal Trade Commission is you know, is doing what it's always done. Um, it's, in a sense, uh, it's locally driven. Uh, they don't have a lot of resources, so they have to be fairly caref- careful in picking the uh, uh, the cases that they will uh, challenge. Um, and, you know, with the hope that uh, uh, successful challenges of mergers will, uh, you know, send a signal and discourage similar mergers from uh, from coming about. So, you know, to me, the FTC has successfully returned to its traditional role as challenging some uh, mergers and establishing what the nation's antitrust policy is. Now, you said this was discussed at a meeting you attended yesterday. Can you tell us a bit about what that um, discussion involved? Well, actually, the you know, the discussion of the... Uh, Federal Trade Commission uh, antitrust policies of that meeting was surprising to me because a lot of it was Federal Trade Commission 101. A lot of it was explaining how they do their work. Um, unlike some of the other presentations, which were, you know, focused on you know what needs to change in policy, uh, the. Uh, The focus on antitrust policy was really much more about how it works. Okay. Let me ask you uh, this question. What what are your concerns as it relates to, again, this interaction between the provisions of the ACA, even though, as you point out, that many of these activities preceded the, uh, maybe the ACA just codified them. Um, But what what are your concerns about uh, the market's evolution uh, so even with or without uh, the Affordable Care Act's provisions. Oh, sure. In fact, you know, let me not 
give the impression that I've gone that far. I mean, I think that the what was done in the ACA as far as provider payments was very decisive, very bold. It basically, you know, took a history of, uh, you know, fairly ineffective, I would say very timid uh, demonstrations uh, run by, uh, you know, the CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and uh, put instead, they use the term pilot rather than demonstrations, a very large program in a sense, and it's really not so much uh, experiments to learn. It's really, I would say, a you know, fairly vigorous implementation of a new approach with volunteers. Uh, I mean, that's the main difference between you know, just legislating that Medicare will pay on an ACO basis, but very extensive, in a sense, an opportunity for CMS to do as much as it can. Uh, with all the capable and interested parties. So more aggressively drive innovation. That, that's right. It, it's very much, uh, you know, they, they have a lot of leeway as to what innovations and can pursue it aggressively as opposed to, oh, you know, I think we have enough uh, participants now to learn something. Uh, you know, they're, they're directed and permitted to go uh, much further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on, on accountable care organizations now, uh, the existing contracts in place now cover about 8% of Medicare beneficiaries. Now, you did so. Let me ask you specific to some research work that you did. You did a qualitative look at ACOs, I believe, in California. Yes. Correct? What, what did that work show? Well, actually, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Is this the work you did with uh, Dr. Berenson? Oh, oh, that was not about ACOs. Okay. Uh, what I, reason I was confused is that I can say that we actually as part of a later study uh, for the California Healthcare Foundation, we are writing a paper about ACOs in California. Okay. Uh, I can't give you the conclusions <laughs> okay. today, but, but I hope uh, we're hoping that it'll be published in a you know, month or two. And, uh, uh, but actually, you know, what I can say now is that ACOs in California are uh, really quite distinct from ACOs in many other parts of the country. Because California was already so advanced in the use of uh, what's called the delegated model, where which is that physician organizations, be they medical groups or uh, independent practice associations, have long taken risk for professional services and also you know, taken over uh, many functions that health plans tend to perform, uh, such as utilization review, because they're under risk. But you know, so if you, the the study with uh, with Berenson that was in Health Affairs, uh, based on earlier round of California site visits, was really just talking about um, a provider leverage in that market. And you know, I think one of the most important points is that it was saying that it's not just about concentration or consolidation. There are many other uh, you know, factors that can lead to a hospital or hospital system having a great deal of market power. And we use the term must-have status. So that there, there are cases that we reported on where uh, a single hospital in a very large market had, uh, you know, terrific ability to get high rates because um, 
you know, the marketplace demanded that health plans have that hospital in their network. Plans just had no choice if they wanted their products to be attractive. And that, uh, you know, having a unique service, having a stellar reputation uh, can be as important as consolidation in general uh, as far as provider leverage. Okay, let me just go back to um, the just previous question or part thereof, and that again is what are your concerns about how the market evolves again, um, again sure. with or without uh, the ACA? Yeah, well, I would say that, uh, you know, that the market will continue to consolidate. And, you know, the many, and I would subscribe to this, that many people, you know, have say that, uh, well, probably ACOs and bundled payments are contributing to consolidation. And I would say that's likely true. But that uh, the response to that what should be not to stop the movement away from fee-for-service or the payment reform, but to have it continue and come up with other tools to deal with the higher prices that come from consolidation. So it's really something about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You know, the, uh, uh, the having delivery be more coordinated and integrated rather than fragmented is so important that uh, we should go that way even if it results in additional consolidation, but you know, start focusing on some other policy steps that can be taken so that consolidation doesn't have as large an effect on prices as it would have otherwise. So when you say other tools, I have to ask you then about what Maryland does, for example, the all-payer system. Would that be another tool? Sure. You know, that's certainly, uh, you know, I... I, in fact, my presentation at this conference was about two types of uh, government tools. One is the direct regulation tool, like Maryland is doing, uh, and the other is uh, tools that actually facilitate uh, market processes, that actually make markets more competitive. And of course, the traditional tool in that category is antitrust policy. Uh, but, you know, speaking of, uh, you know, I think that Maryland has been generally effective uh, in its rate-setting system. Um, and I think there are some unique aspects of Maryland's rate-setting system that help explain why uh, the Maryland system has been continued since the late 1970s, whereas other states have discontinued their rate-setting system. And I think a lot of it is involved with the governance of the fact that the Maryland system is run by an independent commission uh, where the governor appoints the members of the commission but their decisions are final and their funding is, comes not from appropriations but actually from a percentage of the claims paid. Uh, so, uh, so I think this model has been responsible for the hospitals uh, traditionally supporting the Maryland system. And because in most other states, hospitals have, you know, been vigorously opposed to it. And as soon as the conditions were right to get rid of it, uh, they prevailed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll just time for one last question, and that is there is the important provision, or some people say the important provision of the MLR and the Affordable Care Act. How effective do 
you think that will... First, can you briefly explain the MLR and how effective you think that will play? Well, you know, the MLR means... Uh, it's called the medical loss ratio, and it's really the ratio of the uh, amount of money in insurance that goes out in paid claims compared to the premiums. And it's really a way of um, protecting consumers from uh, health insurance markets that aren't competitive enough. Uh, you know, that, uh, you know, these minimum ML. MLR ratios. I think it's eighty percent for individual. In the small group and eighty-five percent for the large group. For the large market. group, you know, these uh, th this will have some effect. You know, the effect it'll have on. Uh, um, not sure what effect it'll have on how vigorous plans are in pushing for lower prices. Because if a plan succeeds, you know, if a plan spends money on administrative. Uh, activities uh, in order to get lower prices, uh, it may run afoul of the medical loss ratio minimum because it's paying out less in claims. Correct. It's spending more on administration. It's a perverse incentive. Yes. That, that's right. So, so that actually could get in the way of some uh, techniques. Uh, I actually, you know, see these MLR ratios as a very awkward policy. Uh, th there are other awkward policies. <laughs> Uh, in effect now that, uh, uh, you know, some of which uh, will do more good than harm and some which may do more harm than good. Okay, with that, uh, Paul, unfortunately we're at our time boundary. So let me say thank you again, and maybe in a year's time or so we can revisit this issue and see where we are. Great. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.